Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And if you were to fully electrify your house and your car, uh, your household could save around $5,000 on bills by the end of this decade. And this is just one of the findings from a new study into how Australian households uh, can benefit from the global net zero economy and what it would take to electrify everything, including cooking, heating, cooling, hot water and our cars. Dr. Saul Griffiths is something of a guru when it comes to understanding what it takes to put whole communities and countries on a low carbon and footing. He's behind the rewiring America approach and now works alongside the White House and the US Senate to achieve President Joe Biden's ambitious climate agenda. Um, he's working on we re- rewiring Australia too. And uh, Sol, it's great to have you on 3RRR in Melbourne. How are you going? Great to be on RRR in Melbourne. Thanks yeah. for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I'm curious because, you know, in Victoria or in Melbourne in particular, we uh, depend on gas more so, I think, than, than most other cities in, in this country anyway. Um, when did the shift happen from the idea of gas is greener compared to brown coal here in Victoria and uh, to everything should be electric because that is now the better approach for emissions? I think the the good money has always been on electrification, but the, the big money or the propaganda has been on the side of the gas-led recovery. Um, since the early 2000s, everyone has talked a lot about gas as a transition fuel, but we didn't really do any transitioning for 20 years, and so now we, we haven't really slowed our emissions and there's no more time to have uh, um, like an interim fuel. So we've run out of time to transition slowly through natural gas and we need to go straight to the future which is all electric yeah and yet we've we've still heard you know from our federal government about that the gas-fired recovery and and gas as a transition fuel um which they've very much sort of spoken up in, in recent time what is it about electrification that that could make such a difference both to, to global emissions but also to household bills well to do the first one um there's a at this point we just have to go straight to a zero emission technology and there's no real way to get all of our gas and all of our petrol and all of our coal to zero emissions you you can't sequester that much carbon dioxide so we need to think about the technologies that can do the things that we like like drive cars cook our meals have hot showers and 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 find substitutions that don't use fossil fuels and we know that that can be for heating water or heating our homes, um, heat pump, electric heat pump technology. We know for vehicles now, electric, it, it's all electric and we're getting an increasingly number of increasingly interesting and powerful electric vehicles. And so, and then in Australia, of course, there's been what is known internationally as the um, Australian rooftop solar miracle, where Australians have got the cost of installing solar so cheap on their roofs that the electricity that it gives them is the cheapest electricity delivered to a consumer anywhere in the world. And so I- if we just if we just use that super cheap electricity to power uh, heat pumps for heating and, and our electric vehicles, that's actually the basis for where our uh, our savings can come from. 
Yeah, and you lay that out really in a really compelling way in your, your report. And I'm interested in where you see um, the responsibilities for change sitting because, you know, household by household change, it sounds like we just can't can't get away from that. But at the same time, the electricity grid is bigger than, than one household. Where do you see is the kind of role, I guess, of government versus private sector versus individual in this shift that you, that you map out? We need, you know, it's so the climate situation or the reality is so dire that we need everyone to play nicely and everyone to play together. So we need the grid operators to not commission any more fossil fuels and only commission wind and solar and renewables. Um, and we need the household to start purchasing electrified end use equipment. Those things really represent sort of the supply and the demand side of energy. Supply is where we get it from, demand is how we use it. The climate debate for various reasons is mostly focused on the supply side for the last two decades, but we now know that we need to electrify the demand side just as quickly, and that, and that involves the decisions that are made in people's homes. Or one way to think about it is um, there's a small number of very big machines that are owned by governments and corporations. They're coal-fired power plants and LNG terminals and the like. They have to change and there's a very large number of small machines. That's us. That's the, the humans and the voters that live in houses in the suburbs. And we need to electrify um, our water heater, space heater, kitchens and garages. And your your paper lays out how Australian households could save um, around $5,000 on bills, but there might be some people listening who, um, you know, are very much into emissions reduction and getting to net zero as quickly as possible, but might not necessarily, um, you know, have great wealth or, or own their own home or, or that sort of thing. How feasible is it to start to, to transition some appliances and, and, and I, I guess, purchase some of those um, electrified versions of, of household? items um, in the first place and, and, and then sort of, I suppose, recruit those costs down the track as energy bills uh, drop? I think you've, you've highlighted three interesting questions. Let me, let me <laughs> see if I can give you three interesting Far away. <laughs> um, well, the first point is what, at what point is it going to start saving us, um, saving us money? Mm. And the answer is for most appliances, if you were running a, 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 a water heater, or a space heater off your solar today, it would save you a little bit, but you'd have to be able to pay up front an extra thousand bucks or so when you buy that water heater because the heat pump water heater is more expensive than natural gas and you'd have to pay a few more thousand dollars for your space heater. And as you know, with electric vehicles, you know, they're 10 or $15,000 more than their um, non-electric uh, equivalent. So you start, so, so there's sort of a, what they in technically they call it a capex and an opex problem. One is the money you pay up front. One is the money you save later. We now can confidently say that by 2022, 2023, 2024, we'll all be saving money later after if we could afford these things up front. But because electric vehicles are still running down what's called a cost curve, so they're getting five or ten percent cheaper every every year or two. And the same is still happening with heat pumps and and the solar and the batteries. They're all getting cheaper every year. The, the real economics flip for every household in Australia in about 2024, meaning if you could, someone would loan you the money to buy the things and you were using a clean grid and your solar on your roof to power them, you'd be saving the money. The, the, the question 
then is you had two more questions. One is, well, how does that work for a household that struggles with those upfront costs? And the other um, question is like, when do you start doing this? And who plays? The reality is for, you know, today, if you can afford a Mercedes or a BMW, you could buy the machines outright and you'd be saving money immediately. But if you could afford a Toyota only, you know, if you were in the market for Toyota Camry, then it's still a few years away. And if you're still in a household that can only afford used Toyota Camrys, then it's further away again. And for that, I think there's no real way of hiding the fact that we're not going to need government to come in and help all households through subsidies or rebates or financial products so that every household can afford to do this. And the state governments in Australia, despite the federal governments sort of not really leading on climate, the state governments are actually doing very well. And for mm. example, in, Cal- in uh, Victoria, um, there are programs where you can buy, uh, the, the Victorian government will help you buy or subsidised electric appliances to switch out your natural gas. Um, and there's programs for subsidising solar still. So I think the, the big picture of the paper we tried to write was um, there's a lot of money to save here, about five or $6,000 a home, if we can help everyone afford it. And the, the government should start to think that about everyone's homes and cars as part of the national energy infrastructure. And then if we're really going to solve climate change, we need to think carefully and deliberately about how to help everyone join that uh, that revolution or energy transition. Yeah, and I think you call it the equity factor in your report. Um, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Saul Griffith, if you've just joined us. Uh, he's founder of Rewiring Australia, and he's also been part of Rewiring America. And I wanted to ask you about what's happening in the United States. I get, you know, I get a sense with some big announcements that the uh, Biden administration um, put forth earlier this year that things are starting to to move there and, and my understanding is your rewiring America plans have been quite influential. What is it that you're you're doing or what is the advice that you're currently giving uh, to the United States government? So, the, like you said, the US actually came out, you know, first or second day of Biden's term as president and said 50% reductions by 2030. Uh, that is spectacular, very ambitious. That's in line with the climate science. I wish the, everyone else would do the same. Um, but they have to translate those sort of capital P high-level policy goals into actual legislation. And so right now there's a, a, a bunch of different pieces of climate legislation going through the U.S. Senate. One of it's called the Clean Electrification Standard. That's to make sure that all of the utilities are preferentially putting in wind and solar instead of any fossil fuels. There's something called the Clean Cars for America Act, which is helping um, trying to get America to 50% electric vehicle sales by 2030. And then we've been working on a piece which is called the Zero Emission Homes Act, which is um, rebates and subsidies designed to help people electrify their end uses in their houses for water, heat and space heat, laundry and kitchen. And so all of those pieces are trying to work together um, to add up to the amount of ambition that the, the Biden administration has. And it's not quite there, but at least it's in the right direction. 
Yeah, and it must be really interesting to be working in that space, given the the monumental shift in the, the United States um, climate ambitions and what's happened around the world as a result of you know rejoining the, the Paris Accord and really talking up um, the the necessity and and the need um, to move towards net zero as quickly as possible. Is there anything sort of particular or, or specific in your experience in assisting with those uh, policy making processes in the US that you think could be particularly beneficial for Australia, I suppose, taking into account um, uh, our unique political dynamics with state governments who are doing much more than, than the federal government is, at least at this point in time? You know, and probably what I should have come out with at the front of the show. So I do this work with European countries, with the US and with Australia. Mm. And in looking at when these technology transitions, meaning when, when, when's it going to start saving money for average people, Australia gets to go first and go earliest. We have the best opportunity of all the countries that I've worked with to transition quickly and to transition quickly in a way that saves all money's households, uh, all households' money. And there's a few reasons for that. One, one is even written into our national poetry. We are a sunburnt country. We have fabulous solar resources. We did some pretty clever things about a decade ago um, that enabled the rooftop solar revolution, which is why rooftop solar is one third the cost in Australia it is in the US for the same systems. Just think about how profound that is. Um, and so my real agenda in Australia and, and sort of my theory of change, if you, if you will, although I'm not sure I love that, that phrase, is that Australia could now announce a totally economically sane, we go first, we go hardest um, electrification strategy for households and that would be the type of thing we should be announcing at Glasgow to the world and helping all the rest of the countries increase their ambition. And really, a lot of the work I'm trying to do in rewiring Australia is just help people understand that it's the domestic economy, it's our homes and our vehicles or our castles and our cars, as you might put it, um, that are ready to go right away this decade. We should be sort of cutting and pasting the best of all of those state government policies into a federal policy. And then we should be focusing our 2030, 2040 goals on electrifying our industry because ultimately Australia's gift to the world is that we're going to make the world's green metals using Australian renewables. And that's, you know, we're going to save money in the domestic economy in the short term and we're going to really increase the productivity of our export economy in the long term. And so, you know, Australia, I've come to describe as in terms of this energy transition is the, not the lucky country, but the luckiest country. Um, we, we could really be winning sooner and, and more. And do you get a sense that households in Australia, you know, believe that? Like, I think when you look at what is it, 3 million households now with rooftop solar, it feels like people really are investing their own hard-earned into this kind of technology. And, and you know, I noticed the, the person, I don't really notice cars, to be honest, but one of my friends around the corner had one of the oldest cars I've seen anyone driving. And, and the other day I noticed that they've got a, a fully electric car there and people are standing and looking at it because it <laughs> says it on the car. And you can see the shift happening in our in our streets and um but you know where where is the convincing need needed to be done now do you think is it really at that federal political level or um you know are we needing to to convince ourselves still so like like i said earlier we've got to get over like what's the next thing you do like this is a full-on emergency we have to do all of the things all at once and so i'm here and can use 
my skills and not oratory skills and analysis to help move the federal government. But the federal government's not going to be more ambitious until the populace is more in favour of this. And like you said, I, you know, I think that transformation is starting to happen. Everyone who has rooftop solar or the majority of people who had a good experience and it's saving them money, the, you know, everyone I know who owns an electric car absolutely loves it. And they, if they have a, a petrol car as well, it basically sits parked in the garage because once you've got an electric, it's just easier, cheaper and more fun. And to emphasize that, you know, an electric car in Australia running off your rooftop solar costs you one or two cents per kilometre and a petrol car, same petrol car would cost you 15 or 20 cents per kilometre to drive. So it's like a slam dunk if we could finance those things. So I think we, you know, to, to do this transition at the speed that climate change needs it to, we basically can't afford to buy any more petrol vehicles. We can't install a natural gas furnace or a water heater ever again. We've, you know, we've got to, we've got to electrify that, those demand side machines that we own. And that's the, so that's why we're trying to, what we're trying to communicate to the households. Turns out solving climate change is easier than you think. There's five big decisions you make. It's what you heat, what heats your water, what heats your space, what, what drives your car, whether you've got rooftop solar and, and what you cook with. Those are decisions that the Australian people make every decade. So it's like, oh, okay, I get it. There's a pretty simple recipe for me decarbonizing my life. And then to the federal government, we're trying to say, well, the people are going to be lining up for this. Now you need to help them by making sure the regulations advantage these systems, by helping with rebates and subsidies, by making the tax code favorable. Because we got to we got to have everyone moving as fast as they can if we're to have any hope of beating a two degree world. Yeah, and, and as, as you're speaking, so I'm just imagining if some of the the you know the, the motivations um, and uh, uh, you know governments imploring people to go out and, and get vaccinated to deal with the, the pandemic were applied to climate change, and, and if there was a real encouragement to go out and and convert some of our appliances and and you know purchase these um, you know electric vehicles and the like. That could help us move towards uh, net zero while also reducing household energy bills, you might find that, that many more people would take it up if we had that kind of support and encouragement. But from where you sit, obviously, we're, we're moving towards um, Glasgow um, in just a, just a few weeks. Are you optimistic at what might come out of that and, and whether we'll see a, a rapid shift at all, particularly in Australia, I suppose, with re- rewiring our homes and, and moving in a more ambitious direction? Um. Again, there's a couple of questions. I'm really glad you brought up vaccines. I I have been saying, and I really believe it, electrification is the vaccine for climate change at this point. And it's a very simple message. And in a very analogous way to COVID, um, you benefit hugely by going hard and going early. And so I think if we could have a similar mindset to that, the solution uh, our climate solutions are vaccinating ourselves by electrifying our homes and cars and then electrifying industry. That would clear up a lot of the confusion and the culture wars that comes from, you know, the broadcasting of gas-led recovery and these other bad ideas. Let's just make it simple and understand what the answer looks like. That's not to say there won't be some anti-vaxxers. There will always be some of those. Um, but that, I think, is the very clear task at hand for everyone. As regards Glasgow, um, I will remain hopeful until the last minute that Australian leadership might listen 
to me and listen to others and stand up and lead the world because we need a Churchill or a Roosevelt in this moment because it is very, very, very difficult to hit a climate target that deserves to be hit. And even America is or, you know, working hard on America. What they get through the Senate is not going to be remotely commensurate with their goals. So I see an opportunity for Australia that is a little bit competitive. We love winning rugby and we love winning the Olympics. We love anything where we can win internationally. It would be pretty fabulous if we stood up in Glasgow and said, we're going to rule the world and we're going to, we're going to show you the way to do it. We're going to go fast. We're going to go hardest. We're going to vaccinate early. I don't think that will happen though. I think the Australian government will barely scrape in with a very soft net zero 2050 commitment. Once again, our peer nations will be petro-states like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Russia, and we'll all be a little bit embarrassed on the world stage. But having said that, even though I think that's probably what will happen at Glasgow for Australia, I think the Australian people are ready for this. We're very aware because of the fires, because of the, the, the floods and droughts of the precariousness of the Australian environment. And I think because the economics are just are starting to shift very much in favour of the Australian household, we are going to lead the world on this path. We, in very many respects, we already are. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us all. And uh, yeah, the, the report's really readable um, too. So thanks for that. And um, people can get it on the we uh, from Rewiring Australia. And um, yeah, all the best. And uh, let's hope that the federal government here doesn't keep us waiting too long, but they really are acting last minute at the moment. We don't know what we're taking to Glasgow oh, yet. So there you go. To all the young people who listen to your radio station, get out there and get really loud in the next few weeks and demand it. Absolutely. We actually need the people to rise up. We really do. Thanks so much. And let's um, hope, hope the health, health um, laws allow us to do something like that. Um, we'll speak again, no doubt. Thanks heaps. Uh, Dr. Saul Griffith there, um, founder of Rewiring Australia. And uh, sorry about that, Dylan. And I wanted to point out one thing is um, I know, you know, a lot of people want information. That report that, that they've put out from Rewiring Australia is very good. Um, there's also like a Facebook group called My Efficient Electric Home. So if any of this was quite compelling from you, you can get uh, information from that group um, straight from the horses, from volunteer expert in this space. And you can just find that on uh, on Facebook. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. What will our city be like after COVID or in the post-lockdown world? Um, even if me asking this question makes you feel tired, um, that's totally understandable and it's okay because you don't have to answer it. We have Dr Dave Nichols on the line to speak to this novel idea of this city being out of lockdown. Dave is, of course, Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne and this is the kind of thinking he does. And Dave, it's great to have you. And I understand this is the kind of topic in some of your circumstances at the moment, um, envisaging what Melbourne or the, the opening up experience might be for Melbourne. Absolutely, Kalia. Hi, hi to both of you. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's something that um, people are thinking about a huge amount. And I guess it's, um, apart from anything else, extremely topical today because, uh, as we know, Sydney has uh, opened up having reached, or sorry, New South Wales has opened up having reached its uh, its vaccination rate um, much higher than the than the overall nation. So at twelve oh one this morning, um, anyone who's uh, properly vaccinated can can do all kinds of things around 
uh, New South Wales. Uh, hopefully, um, there haven't been. I haven't seen the news. I went looking, but I haven't seen any news of major fights. Apparently, when Norway um, opened up, it was um, sort of a surprise. This was a few weeks ago when Norway opened up. Um, people just went out and got massively drunk uh, en masse and um, sort of bashed each other up, which is, you know, I mean, those Norwegians, we know what they're like. But um, yeah, of course, it's something that that's, you know, in the in the in the micro and the macro sense, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch. And it's the kind of thing that the kind of processes that we've read about, um, you know, this kind of um, great disruption that uh, we're uh, presumably uh, after this this whole couple of years, uh, society will you know there'll be there'll be differences and you know uh, progressive or visionary governments at all levels will you know take the reins and um, and use this as an opportunity to improve uh, processes and uh, practices. Yeah, well, we hope so, don't we? And uh, I mean, there's been a, a lot of talk, you know, going back to uh, the last 18 months or so, really about the, the changing kind of work life of people, whether we will go back into offices and, and how that impacts on businesses in the city, restaurants and cafes and all that sort of thing as well. And so whether even, you know, the economy of the city will be fundamentally different as well as just a number of people moving through it. Where does your mind go when you're thinking about how the city and, and other urban environments, I suppose, might be different once we do open up? Um, yeah, look, I mean, we've a few weeks ago as part of a, um, a symposium um, talking about these kinds of things and there was, you know, there's that same kind of push and pull where people, uh, some people, and I guess it's just, you know, it's the nature of, of people and society kind of falls into these two broad categories, people who are desperate for things to go back to the way they were and people who were really keen to see um, you know, advantages made of the changes that have been imposed on us. So, you know, that there's a lot of upset naturally that, for instance, if we're going to talk about the central city and anybody uh, listening who's been to the CBD of Melbourne in the last few months will know that it's, you know, not quite a ghost town, but, you know, it's um, uh, there's certainly a lot of businesses have, have gone by the board that are clearly not going to come back. And there's a lot of empty shop fronts and, um, you know, things look kind of ratty. And, you know, oddly enough, it's not a million miles removed from uh, the CBD 30 years ago when, um, you know, the last time that we had a really big um, recession and there was a lot of hand-wringing over that as well. I think, you know, in a way, I think CBDs, you know, they ebb and flow, they, they, they bounce back um, most of the time. But there's, of course, another question about that uh, whether the the people of Australia uh, will, you know, having worked from home, many of us for the last 18 months, uh, will have come to realise that actually, you know, this kind of works. You know, it's not not necessarily ideal. Things would still have to be, um, improvements would still have to be made. But, you know, maybe there is no need to go into the office every, every day. And maybe uh, people could... Uh, spend, you know, weeks at a time working from some kind of remote location and uh, uh, maybe just come together on a, on a periodic basis, which means that businesses don't need to pay big fat rents for, um, you know, central um, office space, which means that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the people or the companies or the or the businesses that uh, 
make their profits out of that kind of real estate transaction uh, are going to suffer. And then you have the sort of question is, you know, should the status quo be suffering or should the status quo get a kick in the pants? And that's, you know. Well, I mean, a lot of it comes down to who gets to kind of make those decisions because I was just thinking, you know, I remember Melbourne when it was still what they call it, like a a donut city in the sense of a donut with a hole in the middle where, you know, the activity happened in the rings outside of the city rather than in the middle. But, I mean, that takes us... Yeah, not a gem donut. Um, donut with a heart. Yeah, and and well, you know, if 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 there was, um, if we go to a jam donut, then were international students that the jam really for our city because that's what brought a lot of the life in the residential back into the, in, um, putting residential. My in mind the went the to city. traffic, not international students. Traffic oh, really? jam, but you know, <laughs> 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 oh, good one. I like that's that. Oh, one, we yeah. could just I'm you know, brainstorm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea that yeah, that we can we enlivened our city and the CBD, and it was. really really exciting and the laneways opened and we had that real vision about how to inject life into all aspects and all little corners of our city and micro bars and that sort of thing. So there was a vision there. Are we going to see a, a, a similar vision of uh, emerge here, Dave? Yeah, look, possibly. The international students thing is, uh, that was a, a really, you know, that was that was mismanaged in, in so many ways, uh, the way that international students were uh, expected, required, um, were you know pop- populated the the inner parts of the city uh, on a temporary basis. They're often you know really exploited and and so on. I mean, I, I think personally, uh, the um, and this is just this is just my feeling that um, you know international students will return and uh, you know maybe not in such massive numbers, but still in pretty big numbers. I don't think that you know the days of the international student uh, are gone. The, um, you know, as a kind of, um, you know, the jam and the donut. But um, nevertheless, uh, that was another example probably of a, um, an opportunity that was missed in a way. Um, you know, I don't think they were, they were treated that well. So that's, that's something that maybe we need to think about going forward. The, uh, the ways that, um, that the city came to to be a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a hot, hot, hotbed of activity in the last 20 or so years. Very, very unusual. You know, in a, in a way, it's um, Melbourne hadn't been like that in my whole lifetime, really, um, until, you know, the, the turn of this century. Um, I think that it's, um, you know, it, it may return, but it may also be that, you know, we already know that a, a vast majority of people uh are much more living lives virtually than they are living lives in in reality, and of course most people want a combination of those things. Um, so maybe once again it can be a case of uh, people living far away from the CBD and and not really experiencing it that much. I personally think that a lot of people like the idea of the CBD being there if they ever want it, but um, they didn't necessarily uh, want it. All that, all that often in the, um, you know, the pre-pandemic days. It's, a, it's one of those. It's another. Just add it to the list of the known unknowns. What, what's going to happen to the central city? 
Yeah. Speaking with Associate Professor Dave Nichols, um, who joins us roughly monthly on the show, talking about um, plans for, for Melbourne opening up. And this is, of course, coming on the day that Sydney is opening up uh, with those who are double vaccinated, able to do many more things than, than they were um, up to this point. And uh, I mean, one other big issue, Dave, is, has been homelessness. And we've spoken on the show, you know, back when we were talking about the Olympics, which I know you, you enjoyed a whole lot, um, about the, the tendency for these very large scale, uh, you know, public events and so on to, to end up pushing homeless people out to the fringes. We've seen unprecedented uh, sort of support and, and spending to put a roof over the head of, of people who are experiencing homelessness through the pandemic. How do you see that uh, changing or, or, you know, if it will change once we, um, sort of broadly speaking, get our freedoms back and are able to move through the city more? How, do you think that we've learned anything through this experience? Well, I mean, Dylan, when you say we... Um, you're not really talking about everybody. You're talking about, I guess, governments. Mm. Um, there's a great article uh, in Housing Studies uh, from about a year ago by Parcel Clark and Kuskoff, where they they talk about how neoliberals have changed their their talk in a way. They've gone from talking about sick talk and sin talk when it comes to the homelessness. So I guess that's kind of that age-old trope of um, blaming the poor for their disadvantage, and that they are instead talk, turning towards system talk. So they're they're kind of, you know, coming around very late to the party on the idea that maybe um, people who are homeless are not, uh, you know, necessarily entirely to blame, but uh, the fact that there aren't any or enough homes for them is really the problem. Uh, that's, it's another great question about whether, well, not just whether um, the authorities, if you want to call them that, um, will, will take the reins. And it's going to kind of matter, I think, uh, who's who's in government to take the reins? Uh, you know, because I I personally feel there are some some political persuasions that are more likely to want to um, make something of this situation and learn from the the pandemic scenario when it comes to addressing something like homelessness. Um, and there are others who are very keen to just like go back to how how it was. And you know, there are. Um, uh, there are, are some. I know nobody wants to hear my my sort of dumbass uh, entrenched political uh, opinions, but there are some <laughs> some, political, you, Dave. <laughs> some political parties who um, who are who are very uh, happy to identify and stigmatise particular groups in society as you know um, uh, leaners rather than lifters, and so it's a it's a kind of you know it's one of those funny things where you you can you know everybody was amazed a year ago. Or, or 18 months ago that, you know, homelessness was a very solvable problem. Mm. It was just, it was, it could be dealt with. And, you know, all that, um, all those crocodile tears for so many decades about homelessness, as it, as it very obviously got worse and worse, uh, were c- completely um, ingenuous. Uh, it's quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, I guess the question is, you know, if you're one of those politicians or, Whatever policymakers who uh, ignored the problem for for a long time and then turned around and just solved it because it was a public health issue, uh, and it suddenly became oh well we've got to get um, we've got to get the homeless out of the way because you know they're people too and they can um, they can infect others, um, you know can they in all conscience go back to things how they were? Um, I mean I suppose yes with the sort of consciences that a lot of those people have yes they probably can but uh, will um, it'll be interesting to see whether they are held to account or can be held to account 
for that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, just to go to a, a, a very nonpartisan issue, and that's climate change. Uh, I mean, what what in the sort of um, urban planning um, discussions that, that you are part of, Dave, what um, discussions are sort of happening around preparing for future shocks? Because we know certainly with our urban environments that climate change and its effect on potential effect on infrastructure and things like that um, are coming our way over in, in, in the coming decades. Isn't that, I mean, it's interesting because uh, I guess the first few months of the pandemic, um, global people in various global cities saw their city in a whole new light because they saw a, a relatively pollutionless city. That's um, not so much the case in Australia that, that we have those kinds of problems, but uh, certainly some parts of the world, people were like, oh, there's, there's that mountain range on the, on the horizon that was never... Because never people weren't using vehicles, basically, or, or, you know, there wasn't so much um, work going on, um, factory right. work and things like that, yeah. That's right. But then we also find that, um, and I'm, I'm sure everybody's noticed this, that people are much less likely to take public transport uh, and much more likely to drive their mm. vehicle at the moment. Um, you know, for, well, I guess, obvious reasons. And um, so there's, you know, it's swings and roundabouts on that front. But in terms of climate change, I think, once again, I would point to this kind of, um, and a lot of a lot of people, I've been reading this terrific book called What Happens Next, uh, edited by Emma Dawson and Janet McCallman, uh, that came out about, I think, late last year. The um, There's a lot of talk there about climate change and how, uh, climate change is can sorry uh, it, measures to address climate change can possibly benefit or the kind of the will to address climate change can benefit from the pandemic simply for the very simple reason that um, it it alerts everybody to this kind of um, the fact that we're we're all in this situation and we're all you know um, beholden to each other we all you know we're it's a it's a community kind of thing i'm sorry i can't i can't put it in any any more in any more basic a way and and that there is a um, you know once again a time to to seize the the whole situation and address the problems because um people can you know uh recognize that they're parts of they're a part of a community or a part of a small community local communities and larger communities people um you know, are, are just kind of a little bit discombobulated by the the situation that they find themselves in in the pandemic, but they um, are really re envisioning their uh, their whole society and their um, their environment just on that basis. And people also, by the way, just um, just those silly little things where with the lockdowns, people are going out and actually investigating their very local environment and uh, and perhaps. Um, uh, acquainting themselves with their uh, their immediate world uh, can make a huge difference about how people regard their their situation and their um, uh, and the the ecology of their their local ecologies. Well, I mean, I, I, I just have to guess that this is what's happening all over Melbourne because, of course, I can't travel all over Melbourne at the moment. But in my area, uh, people are on picnic blankets, and it's kind of like a festival every day on the weekends in the in the various different parks. And um, one I saw yesterday had people had tents set up and making the most of that kind of small amount of, of freedom to gather in that way. And um, it sort of yeah it makes me happy. But I imagine when we have other choices 
choices for socialising and able to visit each other again. We won't have that festival feel in our parks, our local... It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dave. Um, it's always good talking to you and, uh, and we'll catch you again probably in early November. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Like so many institutions, State Library of Victoria has adapted to lockdown restrictions to offer up online events and exhibitions to help us get through these long months of isolation. As part of their broader exhibition, Changing Faces of Victoria, they've put together an online gallery charting the evolution of coffee culture in Melbourne, something that is, of course, very close to our hearts. To talk all about it, we're joined by State Library Victoria curator Linda Short. Linda, thanks for coming on Triple R. Appreciate it. Hi, Dylan. Good to be here. And um, first up, are you a coffee drinker? Well, I have to confess, I probably shouldn't, but not really, actually. <laughs> I um, I guess it wasn't really a cultural norm for me growing up in Scotland in the 80s. We, we drank a lot of tea, but... Um, so that was something that really interested me when I moved to Melbourne uh, from Glasgow. Um, I couldn't believe really how popular and how entrenched coffee was in everyone's kind of daily rituals here in Melbourne. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you know, Melbourne is, is renowned for its obsession with coffee, as you say. And, and I think, uh, I mean, we, I often have assumed that this emerged from the kind of post-war migration boom with the arrival of, uh, you know, Greek and Italian populations and certainly the, mm-hmm. the popularisation of, of espresso. Um, but is this the case or does our um, kind of love of coffee go back further? It does go back further, and I guess the kind of coffee culture we know now didn't didn't really happen overnight. Like you say, it was a bit of a, a slow burn, and um, you know, coffee arrived or was brought to Australia with the first fleet. Um, and government records tell us that the first coffee tree was planted around eighteen thirty in the eighteen thirties in Brisbane, um, and it took kind of coffee a while to have its big first moment, and that was really during. Um, the sort of mid-1800s um, during the temperance movement, which was a, a social and political movement that promoted uh, coffee as a healthy alternative to alcohol. So um, this movement was really about trying to stop people drinking alcohol altogether. And um, that coincided with the gold rush here in Victoria and a kind of influx of people to Victoria and an increase in wealth. And we started to see the rise of these incredibly um, opulent and elaborate buildings known as coffee palaces, where people were encouraged to go and socialise instead of pubs. And, and maybe describe some of these buildings to us, because I, I did not know about the coffee palaces of magnificent Melbourne. Uh, and some of the, the buildings I understand are, are really big and still there. Yeah, well, well, one surviving, there's, there aren't that many surviving examples. So just to give you some context, by around 1888, there was um, more than 50 of these um, coffee palaces in and around Melbourne. Um, one that you will be familiar with today is um, the the Spring on Spring Street. It's the um, Windsor Hotel. Um, so that's one of the surviving um, palaces that was called uh, the Grand Coffee Palace. In the exhibition, we sort of shine a spotlight on two, um, 
two coffee palaces that reveal the highs and lows of the movement. So one that was very popular with locals and tourists, it was called the Federal Coffee Palace, and it was on the corner of King and Collins Street, um, so near Southern Cross Station. Today, um, unfortunately, it was demolished in 1973, and the building that's there... um, is, is office office books and shops, but it was um, you know just to give you a sense of how elaborately where it had over 500 rooms, so for kind of sitting and reading, smoking, uh, sleeping, it had the largest dining hall in the country at the time, and and its design, the design of the building itself, really catered to the sort of extravagant tastes and wealth of the time as well. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, I've, I've got an image in my head. If this was uh, promoted as an alternative to alcohol, people, you know, sitting around for hours getting increasingly jacked up on coffee. Do you have a sense of, of what <laughs> kinds of places they were like to be in and, and what people did there? Well, they're, they're really described as social hubs and, and meeting places. So they functioned as hotels as well. So people would use them as sort of destinations. So they, they were popular with locals, but also with tourists. So um, the Federal Coffee Palace was so popular that they published uh, a tourist guide um, that we also have on display in the exhibition. And inside it had this has this amazing pull-out map of Melbourne, so a kind of aerial view of Melbourne that visitors could use to walk around and um, familiarise themselves with the city and also where other coffee palaces were located. What's interesting is by the time of the 1890s, so we had the boom years of the 80s, 1880s, and then we have the kind of crash of the 1890s. And what actually happened was a lot of um, coffee palace owners decided to start serving alcohol again because it was a lot more lucrative to sell um, to sell alcohol rather than coffee. Coffee was still a fairly expensive commodity and, and remained that way right through to the sort of 1950s and 60s. Yeah, and then look, maybe the temperance movement lost some of its power too, who knows. But I wonder when, how did that then shift from the sort of Melbourne Coffee Palace era to, I guess, the kind of more recent history that, that Dylan alluded to at the top, which is when we saw that post-war migration um, happen after World War II and we saw a lot more of the kind of, you know, Greek social clubs and, and, and espresso yeah. coffee bars and things like that. What, what sort of happened in between time? Well, yeah, like many of our kind of culinary successes here in Victoria and Australia, it, then coffee's um, success is inseparable from the um, cultural communities that settled in Victoria during the war years and, and after World War II. Um, and the exhibition kind of focuses on the influence of Melbourne's Italian migrant community um, who brought a real connoisseurship for drinking coffee and um, introduced uh, the espresso coffee. So the exhibition includes one of the most um, beautiful coffee machines I've, I think I've ever seen. It's, um, and it's a commercial espresso machine that we borrowed from a, a local collector. And so it was Italian and um, the Italian community that brought these um, machines to to Melbourne and the one in the exhibition is thought to be one of the first and they were 
they were really kind of leading um, pieces of technology. Uh, you had to obtain a boilermaker's license to operate one of them at the time, <laughs> which shows just how new and mysterious the technology was to people making coffee here. Um, but of that then sort of saw the um, the pop-up of espresso bars in um, Melbourne's CBD and around in inner city suburbs. And people became really fascinated by the sense of European sophistication um, that these coffee bars brought to the city. And, and it attracted um, lots of people who were starting, and particularly younger generations who were starting to get tired of that kind of old style milk bar or, or the pubs or tea houses. Mm. We're speaking with Linda Short, curator with State Library of Victoria, all about an exhibition they've currently got running uh, as an online gallery charting the evolution of Melbourne's coffee culture and it's, it's part of a, a broader exhibition called Changing Face of Victoria. And another thing that, that occurred to me um, when I was thinking about uh, Melbourne and, and you know, I suppose particularly Victoria's coffee culture is the, the chicory kilns that you see on Phillip Island. It's a place I've, I've spent quite a bit of time and I haven't really seen those kinds of buildings in, in too many other places and I understand, I mean, chicory was used as a kind of coffee additive or, or substitute. Do you know much about mm. the history of these buildings and, and that industry? Look, I don't know a lot about the history of those buildings, but one thing that caught my eye when we were researching this exhibition and we've included um, some of our historical uh, coffee labels that we have in the collection, and they were all they're all promoting um, a type of coffee blend called chicory coffee, and so it was um, a popular and kind of affordable way of drinking coffee. So the added ingredient of of chicory meant that you could eke out the kind of expensive coffee beans. So it's a plant which tastes a lot like coffee when its roots are uh, roasted and grounded. Um, And it took off in France in the early 1800s as a way of, um, you know, as I said, kind of increasing the supply of coffee or being a a substitute for coffee altogether. Um, So that really interested me when I was looking at um, those particular labels to see that really people were not just drinking coffee at that time, they were drinking this unusual blend of, of coffee and chicory and and you can still actually buy chicory coffee, it's still on the supermarket shelves and also the chicory essence the bottles of the essence itself to add to hot milk Yeah, I, yeah I've tried it not, I don't reckon it's it really does me, I don't reckon it really does taste it, like coffee but anyway, why not? Um, but one thing that I, I think a few more people will know is that the, the kind of you know um, reusable takeaway coffee cup, the Keep Cup was kind of innovated here in Melbourne and I always thought it was maybe just an Australian thing that we, you know, coffee on the run, that sort of thing. And, um, mm. you know, I personally, when you're allowed to, I personally prefer to, to drink in or or whatever or that, you know, I like the idea anyway of that Italian sort of drink it while you're standing at a bar type idea. But it really, you know, it's here to stay and it is has been really invaluable actually through the pandemic to have, you know, takeaway windows for coffee and be able to still go somewhere and, and get something. How does uh, – I learned from you that the, the sort of keep cup phenomenon has – has really expanded to, you know, over 60 countries worldwide. I I just didn't know that. Yeah, it has. And actually, I was taken by surprise when we started to research as part of the exhibition that Keep Cup was invented here in Melbourne. That had completely bypassed me. Um, But it was um, created 
by two um, local cafe proprietors. And um, I guess they were responding to this sort of demand for takeaway coffee um, and the problem of throwaway containers that comes with that. And so they set out to design their own um, barista standard reusable cup. And that's what sort of defines it as the first, is that um, it was, um, it could cope with the kind of conditions that that were required of it um, to create, uh, you know, on the, on the coffee machines that um, it was being used with. So um, in over 10 years, it's grown from a local startup into a huge um, global mu- movement, and it's now used in more than 65 uh, countries around the world. So we have um, borrowed a set of cups that... Um, uh, has created its own sort of timeline and shows the evolution of the design because what's interesting with that is it shows how the, the cups uh, design have responded to the, the changing tastes of coffee drinkers and the growing coffee industry. So you see this kind of variety of sizes and variety of materials and improved technologies as well. Yeah, fascinating. And I mean, it's it's for some time felt like, you know, maybe a slight cliche to talk about Melbourne's coffee culture, even though, you know, we've, we've had a, a strong love of coffee for some time, but there's many places all over the world that, of course, and, and many cultures that, that really love their coffee as well. But something that surprised me traveling overseas in places like Japan and Indonesia is that cafes are billed as, you know, having Melbourne coffee. It's still seen as kind of a, a marketing tool. So, I mean, in your experience of putting this exhibition together, did you get the sense there is still very much a, um, a living culture of sort of coffee drinkers and coffee evolution, I suppose, um, in Melbourne currently? Absolutely. I mean, I think internationally we're seen at the forefront of new innovations, especially by our baristas, um, but also our cafe culture. And, um, you know, in the exhibition we do look at the way that um, – that Melbourne were able to um, kind of keep out those larger international coffee chains from taking mm. such a stronghold on um, on our cafes, and and they they really proved to struggle in the city. Um, and I think that's a real show of support by locals for the independent cafe scene. And I think that's really what defines Melbourne as being the kind of capital of coffee is that independent scene. Um, I think that's what appeals to a lot of people and that there is a kind of connection to community through neighbourhood traders. And so it sort of extends far beyond just getting a really good cup of coffee. It's definitely about other kinds of connection. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a, a friend of mine who's big into coffee and, and I said to him, surely there's more coffee shops in Melbourne than we could ever hope to kind of fill. And he's like, no. Nah. The, the cups per seat, he said, we're just nowhere near it. So, yeah, expect more coffee shops to be opening near you. We're nowhere saturated here in Melbourne, apparently. But, I mean, just to, um, quickly, Linda, I mean, you have been working to put on exhibitions online and, and, and keep opening uh, the State Library collection to the people of Victoria, even though, um, you, you know, you can't be welcoming people in in the way that you normally would. How has that gone? And I guess what's the plans for, for your exhibitions and exhibition spaces um, um, you know, as we start to open up, fingers crossed, uh, at the end of this month. Yeah, we're really um, looking forward to welcoming patrons back on site. Um, 
and we're obviously working towards that in line with health advice. Um, so this exhibition we've been talking about is um, accessible at the moment through an online gallery, but it's also a physical exhibition. So um, when our doors open, we'd love to welcome people into the gallery space um, as well as the online gallery. Um, and so I guess during the pandemic, we have been looking at different ways to connect with our, our visitors, um, and most of those have been digital and online. So I think we're up to about 400 digital programs and online stories wow. that um, have <laughs> offered access to library um, events, um, lots of different types of programs. So yeah, windows onto our collection, so discussions about different aspects of our collection, um, programs where people can ask questions of the librarians um, and our conservators and other experts and, and one program that's really popular is helping people to research their family history um, or their house or their street or where they live or, or other topics about um, the social history of, of Victoria um, we've also had children's story time events um, and online school holiday programs so um, we get a for visitors at the library and so our programs have really tried to to give someone to give something for for everyone brilliant so impressive well done on keeping all that going um, over the past year and a half and um, and best of luck um, hopefully as we look towards re- reopening in the next month or so that um, people can come back through your doors and I want to uh, check out that um, glorious coffee machine as well Me too. I'll be paying I was you a visit the same, at going, some point. I want to see the most beautiful <laughs> coffee machine in the world absolutely I'm going to be there <laughs> It is stunning. It is stunning. Um, absolutely gorgeous. It's an Art Deco kind of silver sparkly uh, coffee machine. So highly recommend coming to see that. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, thanks so much, Linda. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Linda Short, their curator at State Library Victoria, talking all about um, an exhibition they've got on all about Melbourne's coffee uh, evolution, uh, which is part of a broader exhibition called The Changing Face of Victoria and lots going on through the State Library, as you just heard, and you can head to their website for all details about those and other events they've got running. I just realised we forgot to ask if she drank chicory. Now, mm. this, that was the question. Was we the missed question. it next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.